the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with the microphone, and you are listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Daniel Post Senning, uh, Emily Post's great 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 grandson. I'm not sure if I got the right greats in there. <laughs> But his new book is called Manners in a Digital World. Now, in the 1920s, Emily Post, as we all know, was the premier expert on good manners and proper behavior. Her great-great-grandson, Daniel Post-Senning, has adapted her rules of poised social behavior to the 21st century, giving us a no-nonsense guide for appropriate online and digital device behavior. And Daniel is a Internet guru who manages web development and online content at the Emily Post Institute in Vermont. So here to talk about his new book, Manners in a Digital World, Living Well Online, Daniel Senning. How are you this morning? I'm well. Thanks for asking. It's good to be with you. Good to be with you. Very practical book for all of us. Um, and there is a lot of confusion about how to act and behave, like you, you know, as you start out in the book, whether it's uh, it, I, IMing people, text messaging, Facebook, all of those things. And you really can get yourself into trouble, not only at, with business and work, but with family and friends as well, if you don't know the etiquette. Is that true? Absolutely. I, I, I love where you start thinking about that's really the way I approach it. And while it's true that people recognize that the, the digital profile is really personal and is repercussive. Now I'm and, losing you. Um, that we also, uh, in our personal lives, the, the digital profile that represents us also really matters. There, there are real people out there who have real feelings who are, are impacted by the way we present online. Okay, so is this the premier book, would you say? I haven't seen any other books that really give us the how-to about how to behave online. I, I mean, I want to talk, Daniel, let's go specifically. Let's start out with what would you say uh, the most important thing we need to know, uh, maybe kind of the overall given for our behavior online in terms of, of, of manners? Sure. The, behavior. The, the, most, the most important thing to remember is that However much the, the environment that we're operating in changes, however new or fancy or technological the device in our hands feels or the network that we're using um, feels, the, the, the same traditional rules that have always applied continue to apply, that you need to treat people with respect and consideration, that you need to operate from a place of honesty and sincerity, and that you need to think about how your actions impact and affect other people. If we can bring that that critical awareness, that process of, of thinking about how what we do impacts others, we're going to be fine no matter what environment we're operating in, whatever the, the specific etiquettes are. So having said that, that, that all of those, those fundamentals really do carry forward and, and, and project into new territory. 
this new territory can be confusing. It, it, it has a, a different landscape. It feels different than maybe some of the more traditional communication mediums. And there are some traps and some pitfalls. So a couple I think of them. one of them from, you know, yeah. I'm a, 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 a social worker. And so my communication a lot, you know, in terms of communicating with people has to do with reading body language, looking at their faces, how you know, expressions, those kinds of things, and that's all part of the communication process, which you don't have when you're doing, you know, in the digital age of communicating digitally. Absolutely. And when words alone are your image, getting emotional content communicated can be extremely difficult. And, and for all the reasons that you say, you lose those, those subtleties of, of even tone and inflection, as well as posture and facial expression. So, when you're trying to communicate emotional content in particular, you want to be really careful. You can always read it back to yourself to hear how it sounds. Definitely let it simmer. Think before you click. Just give it an extra an extra second or two. And a medium like Twitter that happens so fast, we can get seduced into, into very rapid responses. And just giving that extra second, that extra moment of how is this going to be perceived, who's my audience, and really, really letting yourself Think about all the implications or, or repercussions for even a Facebook post or a tweet. What's the biggest mistake? A, a personal example, not necessarily that you made, but yep. that you are that you that you are aware of. Give us an example of of not you know somebody who didn't do that as you described it, and there were really serious repercussions. Absolutely, you know, you, it's hard to put a certain headline in the book because there's a new headline every three or four days. Whether it's a, a, a politician who sends a tweet to his entire board instead of just the direct message he intends, or a judge who's passing around a, a potentially offensive joke via email, um, the examples are, are numbered. Yeah, Alec Baldwin refusing to stop playing his game when he's sitting on a plane. The biggest mistake people make is to overshare, just sharing too much information. Maybe it's something that's too uh, private for such a public medium, or maybe it's just the volume of information is too much. Uh, maybe your grandmother likes everything you do on Facebook. Maybe you tweet your lunch every day, but it goes to your LinkedIn page, and everyone that you're connected to on LinkedIn doesn't want a picture of your lunch in their business email every day. So the overshare, either too private or just too much, too much volume. So what if you overshare and do too much volume and you've made a terrible mistake? Uh, the example of even this is simple, and I've had this happen to me. I mean, you, you, I haven't done it, but someone did it to me, reply all, and it wasn't meant to go to me. I can tell you that. Uh, and so the, what do you do after that, after you've made that mistake? Sure. Well, this is where traditional etiquette can really give us a guide. Those magic words that we learned when we were little, little children are still magic, and they continue to function and work for us. You apologize. It's, it's the most important thing, and you do it personally. You take responsibility for what's happened, and you apologize. You offer to do what you can to make it better. Sometimes you can delete a Facebook post that bothered people. You can't erase the impression it made. Sometimes you can't put the genie back in the bottle. So a, a personal and genuine apology is, is the first step towards repairing that relationship. Have a lot of people that you know or you're aware of, say, lost jobs in their places of employment or in big corporations because of making these kinds of mistakes? Um, yes, it, it happens. And, and the repercussions go both ways. The corporations are making big mistakes. They're, they're giving control of their social media policies and programs to interns fresh out of college. And 
these communication tools are incredibly powerful. So it, it definitely goes both ways. Employees have responsibilities to the businesses that they represent, and there are real repercussions if they don't think about that. And at the same time, there's the, the flip side is true. Businesses really need to provide clear guidelines. They need to give their social media policies weight and meaning so the employees understand both what's expected and what the repercussions or consequences are if they don't follow those policies. Do they have training programs for this, let's say some of the major corporations? I mean, training programs specifically in social media? It's a, a, a rapidly growing field. One of the easiest jobs to get out of school right now is social media coordinator. The Emily Post Institute is doing quite a bit of training about social media for business. And so you can take courses there. Are you talking about like a week-long course? You can go up to the Institute or, or longer courses or day programs? We do an annual train-the-trainer program to certify people to teach our content. That happens once a year for a week up in Burlington. But we also travel nationally and internationally to, to talk to companies about both the, the potential pitfalls but also some of the advantages for leveraging these tools, particularly hospitality, customer service, um, networking. Yeah, well, you, there's a lot of work to be done in customer service. You should be Absolutely. doing Absolutely. <laughs> I can, yes, uh, definitely. Uh, okay, let's get specific about some of these areas because we're kind of giving an overall picture of all of this. Sure. But um, you talk about, um, well, let's talk about smartphones, okay? And you've got this top ten mobile manners for smartphones because everybody has a smartphone, and now we'll get away from corporations but just individuals, you know. Sure. The, yeah. What are the top ten mobile manners for smartphones? Well, the first one for, for individuals that I love to mention is the, the concept of the cell phone security blanket. And just be really careful that you don't dive for your phone every time you find yourself in a new or uncomfortable or even a, a, a normal situation but where you're with new people. So uh, an example that jumps to mind for me is sometimes when I leave my yoga class, there'll be all five people sitting there on a bench. They'll all have their phones out instantaneously the second they walk out the door as if that hour and a half of being disconnected from their phone was almost too much to bear. And I think to myself, you know, that same call, that same message could happen in your car five minutes later, and we could all exchange some pleasantries, get to know each other just a little bit better on our way out of this this, this building. Uh, I see it all the time in restaurants. I see it in, in public transportation. The the idea that we're so uh, uncomfortable just with a, a stranger and the ability to, to make eye contact with someone new, someone unfamiliar, is actually healthy. It improves vagal tone. It's good for our biological chemistry. Um, so it, 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 the cell phone security blanket, the, the tendency to have that phone jump into your hand when you find yourself in a strange situation, I love to advise people to notice that and give it just an extra 30 seconds to see what happens first. Uh, when you fly in a plane and the plane lands, everyone's the minute the plane lands and you're allowed to get on your cell phone, everybody's mm -hmm. on their phone, I've landed. Well, I mean, you know, uh, and it's, I think that's the, what you're talking about in terms of that behavior. Uh, but, I, you know, it seems to be getting worse, not better. Yeah. Well, these devices, they are so powerful, and they connect us with people that really matter to us. So these, these devices start to really matter to us. It's, it's, a, it's, a, 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 it's, only, it's funny. It's one of the reasons I think this book is so important, because managing that relationship, managing that, that portal out into a world that has billions of people and the people you're absolutely closest to is a real challenge. So that moment when the plane lands, a piece of advice I love to give is, why not send a text? Oftentimes it's very practical. You need to get gate info used to get gate information to someone now where I'm going to get picked up. Maybe someone's waiting in a cell phone lot to, to meet you. 
So maybe a text in that moment is a nice substitution. You can't always make that substitution when you're in the middle of a meeting or at dinner. A text is not a safe alternative to a call. But when you're on public transportation, it's a perfect time to make that substitution. All right, that's that's a great example. That's that's good advice. All right, so then what else? What else for smartphone manners? Because you've got a whole list of them. <laughs> sure. Uh, we want a diverse digital diet. So even when you take that phone out, what are you going to do? Are you going to call? Are you going to leave a message? Are you going to send a text? You want to think about what type of message is most appropriate for both the audience and the type of communication. So when I'm getting someone directions, I love to send it as a text. Then they've got it written down. They can copy it into their nav program. They can go back and check it later. If I'm trying to, trying to uh, get someone some information that's, that's more emotional, like you said earlier, precisely because words are, are, are uh, words alone are often inadequate to express fully the way we feel. Maybe that's the time to pick up the phone and make a call, or combine the two, make the call, invite someone to meet you, text them directions, and see them face to face. I think there's also uh, like a cell phone manners on trains. Now, you're in Burlington, Vermont, so you probably take the same train I do, but I'm going back and forth from New York City to Albany all the time. And, I mean, cell phones on trains can really be a landmine of disaster. I have sat on the, I've listened to people talking, I've legislators, lawyers, I've listened to a psychiatrist talk on his cell phone, listing, asking his secretary to cancel appointments and listing the names and telephone numbers of his clients or his patients. Um, I would assume that's not good cell phone manners. Um, and I could go on and Maybe on. what people talk about. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, so one of the first tips for using your cell phone well is to be aware of the captive audience. And you want to be super careful whenever you've got a captive audience and a, a train, a public transportation is a great example. Elevators, the, the more captive the audience, the more discretion you want to use or employ about using your cell phone. So elevators are a big no-no. The checkout line is a big no-no. When you actually get to the checkout person, you have to put your phone away. That is an absolute captive audience, and that person needs and deserves your attention. In the train, someone is going on 30 minutes discussion about a new cat. You just cannot get any more. The, the, the quick reproachful glance has not worked. You rarely have the standing to correct someone else's behavior. A situation like that, you want to look for a conductor or an usher or someone who does have standing to address the situation. I'll tell you what one of my sons did to address the situation. Oh, Maybe. here we go. <laughs> <laughs> it was, he was on a train. It wasn't this one. It was another. But it was uh, a fairly long trip, and this person was in business and was giving talking about very uh, – he was talking about very specifically about people in the business, their names, their telephone numbers. So mm-hmm. – he wrote down all of this information. As he got off the train, he handed it to the guy and said, you better think, and it, with a comment, think about what you're doing next time, and then just got off the train. Fantastic. And it, it illustrates the flip side of the equation that the illusion of privacy, sometimes the conversation that we're having is with someone who we're quite close to, and we forget that, that, that we're in a public situation, that, that even if the conversation's private, maybe the, the the place that you're having it isn't. It's another great thing to think about just when you're doing work on your laptop in public places, the, the, the confidentiality issues surrounding us having these computers and the ability to work any and everywhere. Um, it's, it's really definitely one of the new challenges for professionals and 
for communication. Yeah, that's another good example. My boyfriend partner was on the train, and he was somebody had was on their computer watching soft porn. Oof. So he was watching. <laughs> so inappropriate. There's yeah, almost yeah, nothing so you can say. Yeah. <laughs> that's a situation where definitely finding someone who has the standing to address the situation is advisable for the sake of everyone who's who's, yes. who's being exposed. Yeah. Okay. Well, those are very personal examples. All right. So give us some more <laughs> smartphones. What about taking photographs with smartphones? What's appropriate and what's not? This question is becoming so, so important, and it's, it's emerging in a, a very specific way right now with Google releasing their new Google Glass, where people are wearing devices on their face. Right now they're still in the development phase, but they're just starting to be available to some parts of the public. And if my glasses have the ability to be taking live video all the time, what's my responsibility for telling people? So this is my thinking about that. That if you're in a public situation, you're on a street, or these days, even if you're on in a, a, a public subway, that's a public place, and there's a good chance that all the people around you have camera-equipped cell phones, and being aware of that is part of being out in the public today. Once you've entered a more private situation, and by private it could be when you enter someone's home or a more intimate gathering of friends, or any situation where you say to yourself, this is, this is a situation where I would want my right to privacy respected. A, 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 the extreme example is any time you enter a public restroom. The cell phone needs to go away. Everyone else around you has a, a reasonable expectation, a right to privacy, and you need to respect that. That's not a time for taking pictures or live or video. Um, the questions about when and where it's appropriate to post get into questions of legality. If you're profiting from it, you need releases from people. Um, and, and those are to be very specific legal questions. But in terms of the ethics and the morals, I say respect private spaces and private gatherings. Get people's permission before you use a camera in those situations. Well, in keeping with that, okay, so we're, let's talk about not legalities but etiquette. Let's say you take a picture at a party and everybody knows you're taking the picture or the photograph, mm-hmm. but maybe, you know, you've taken photos of the family and then you – take the liberty of posting them, putting them on Facebook, and maybe your family, and I know an example of this as well, a family member is really upset because they didn't want their photo necessarily posted on Facebook, even though they approved of having their photo taken. Yeah, no, they're they're, they're two different things for sure, and and, uh, applying that or or cultivating a sense of discretion about what we do online is one of the the real skills that I like to talk about or or emphasize in this type of discussion. And that, that sense of discretion of holding back sake of someone else, but waiting to see if the behavior that you're thinking about is appropriate or or maybe even not doing it all at once, a hundredfold, a thousandfold when you're talking about posting a picture of someone else. want to do it. And you, if you've got any question about what that is, you want to really defer to that. That's, that's so anything unflattering yeah. and and you've, you've, you've made that mistake that you honor the other person if they ask you to take it down. You do it instantly and, and, and you remove whatever someone asks you to remove. Alright, that's good advice. Alright, there's so much actually. This is why people have to get your book, Manners in the Digital World, Living on. Well Online. I'm mentioning it again, but let's you know, we don't, I want to proper etiquette because I have a lot of friends who are doing online dating of all different ages, and that's a huge topic in terms of what's proper etiquette for online dating. And I know you have advice about that. Online dating. My biggest tip is that 
oftentimes the tendency on a first date is to want to put your best foot forward. And when we apply that same tendency to constructing an online profile, the tendency is to exaggerate just a little bit or try to paint ourselves in the best light possible. And I tell people that they really want to focus on honesty. It's okay to, to tell the benevolent truth, the kind truth about yourself. But you don't want to set up expectations that are going to be impossible to live up to when you actually meet in person or when a relationship starts to develop. So you really want to think about that profile and, and, and be honest and, and have fun and represent yourself well. But watch that line of, of, of building expectations that you can't that you can't meet. Are there any timelines for like you meet somebody online and you go back and forth and you're you know emailing at some point? Is there kind of a a period where okay now it's time to meet in person or talk on the phone or is there you know a kind of a schedule for that? Yeah, there's usually an escalation through different types of communication. It'll often start with messaging within the service that you're using or emails within the service, the dating site that you're using. Oftentimes, this leads to phone calls and then to in-person meetings. And it's perfectly okay to stop or halt a relationship at any phase along the way. You just want to be sure that you let the person know in whatever medium the relationship's progressed to. So if you've been communicating an email, you can end it by email. If it's escalated to phone calls, you can end it like that. Or in person, you probably want to meet them in person to break it off. If you've done it more than one time, let's say, if you've had several dates, you probably owe the person an in-person breakup. At the same time, there's no specific timeline for, for how or when you escalate. That's going to be a personal choice for each person. It is a good idea if you're someone who's not intending to take that final step of meeting offline that you let someone know early on. Some people are just looking to establish an online relationship, but this percentage is relatively small. If you're in this percentage, it's good to let those folks who are looking to build a relationship online that at some stage they can take offline, that that's not what you're there for. And the sooner you let them know that, the, the better their decision-making is going to be. Yeah, and, and I know examples at the other end are people who have been broken up with online, which is kind of devastating. Just you know. Atrocious. The Facebook status update breakup is one of the great faux pas of the, the digital world. Now, you say that it's important to... Google ourselves. Why? I think of it as just taking a glance at yourself in the mirror if you have to work in the morning. It's not an exercise in vanity. It's really just about knowing how others are perceiving you. You don't want to turn into narcissists. You don't want to get so entranced by your own image that you spend all of your time assessing it. But it is a good idea to have some idea of what other people know or see about you. And the idea that you Google search someone before you have an important meeting with them or interview them is, is pretty standard these days. So having some idea of, of what you look like online is a little bit like having some idea of what you look like in person. Yeah, and that's really important. Well, I have no problem Googling myself every three times a day. That's But... I had a meeting with somebody, and this sort of uh, brings up an example of what you're talking about, and they wanted to have a meeting, and they wanted to, they were actually asking for donations for this organization, a very important one. They had not Googled me beforehand, so they were new to the job, and they were asking me questions. I had actually worked at this organization, which they didn't know about. They didn't know what I did, or I was so insulted, and of course, you know, the result was I wasn't going to give them any monies, but I think that's mm-hmm. an example of what you're talking about. Absolutely. In, in today's world, there is a certain currency around information and knowledge, and because it is so easy to get, for a lot of people, when someone hasn't shown just the basic curiosity 
of doing a little bit of background research, it, it can create that impression that you don't care. Uh, another example that, I, that I'll give us from, from travel, um, we, we at the Emily Post Institute do, don't um, specialize in international etiquette or diplomacy, but we advise people when they're visiting another country, do the, the barest minimum of research. Read the Wikipedia page, learn the, the national holidays, the religion, the politics, just get, get your bases covered. And this is becoming a standard when you meet someone for the first time, that you, that you have some idea of what their digital profile looks like as well as how you interact with them personally. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that in terms of travel, and uh, I do a lot of travel, but, you know, it used to be for business that was standard. Let's, you, you really, if you're going to do business in another country, you really need to understand, you know, the cultural, the culture of the country, and you can do that by Googling and getting the information. But now you're saying just, uh, just as a, a, an average person, a uh, layperson going traveling, you should travel? have a certain, yeah. In general, I'll, I'll tell you a new etiquette, and I don't think this is true for everybody, but digital natives, people that have grown up with these devices in a world of connectivity, sometimes think it's rude when someone asks for directions. Directions are so available. The, the idea that you could take your phone out and get better, more accurate directions yourself makes almost the act of, of, of among a certain um, group of people, the act of asking for directions and imposition or uh, uh, putting on someone else's work that is easily done yourself. Uh, so this, that, that's an example where maybe a, a, a certain generation, there's a certain specific etiquette, a, a certain syntax within their etiquette language that, that is uh, emerging. Yeah, I, and I'm kind of bringing up the examples that you're describing them. I, I have an older friend who's quite a bit older, and, and, and she's always if I'm meeting her somewhere, she's always telling me the directions, and I just, <laughs> just it's okay. But she keeps on going. It doesn't seem to make a difference, so I guess I, I just have to excuse her. She's in her late 70s, so. but, uh, but that's true, and I, because I feel I, like I, it's a waste of my time. I, absolutely, and I love that awareness of this other person being from a different time, having a different set of standards. It's, it's so thoughtful. But another great example is leaving a message, a voice message, on a cell phone. A lot of younger people just don't listen to those anymore. If they see someone's call, they call them back. And it's important for younger people to remember, you know, maybe if that's your boss leaving a message on your phone, he's used to leaving messages that get listened to. And calling him back without listening to that message would be insulting in the same way not looking at your Google page was insulting to you. At the same time, for younger people, it's, it's a certain privilege or honor. It means they don't even need to know what you called about, but they want to call you back. So it's, it's something to be aware of between generations there also. Yeah, I, I think that's really true, and we have so many generations. I mean, we really are going from elementary school kids to people who are 80 years old. And so, I mean, you do have to be conscious of the, what would you call it, the digital divide. And there are maybe it's not just one digital divide, but there are, you know, you maybe go through the four different group, you know, from the millennials to the traditionalists in terms of the generations, because they do approach this digital online um, report differently. They really do. And I'm even starting to wonder if we're seeing the emergence of that next generation, if we're starting to have a dividing line between millennials and digital natives. Uh, but absolutely, you can go right up through the Gen Xers and the boomers and the, the, the traditionalists or the greatest generation. Each has its own uh, the, the manners that evolved around its particular communication environment, and as all of those people are sharing the workspace and the public space, uh, a certain sensitivity and also generosity about uh, about how we deal with each other and our different standards is really important. 
Daniel, it, it's changing. Would you say that it's changing just as we speak, that you have to constantly be upgrading? I don't know if it's called upgrading, but be aware of the new trends and the new etiquette that just does constantly change because new devices are always coming out, too. It, it, it can feel scary. And, and one of the things that I love about this book, and you started off by describing it as practical, is that it, 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 practical advice will continue to function. If you think about what you're doing, think about the relationship that's being served. My, my cousin Anna, when she's presenting, will hold her phone up and say, this is my phone. It's not rude. It's not polite. It's just my phone. It's how I use it that matters. So if you think about what you're doing, the other person involved, going to be okay. Even as everything else is shifting, the, 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 the core standards really do say the same. It's a perception every generation's had when the, the phone first came into the private home. There was a real concern. Was it going to bring business life home? Were, were families even going to sit down and have dinner anymore with that phone hanging on the wall in the entryway? And, you know, new standards emerge and families continue to have dinner together. And I think that families will continue to have dinner together 100 years from now. Well, that's well said, and I think that's a good way to wrap up our conversation. And uh, I, I want to mention your book up again, uh, Manners in a Digital World, Living Well Online, Daniel Post-Senning. Great to talking to you today. Well, likewise. It was a real pleasure being here. We'll talk to you again soon when things change. <laughs> in six months. Guaranteed. In six months, right, exactly. <laughs> Great. Talk to you later. We're going to take a short break now. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. We'll be back in a minute. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Now there's a new destination for video content, VoiceAmerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answers Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. 
the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me is my second guest, Cornell Emeritus Professor T. Colin Campbell, Ph.D., Author of the China study, Dr. T. Colin Campbell is changing the way Americans relate to food, revealing a nutrition plan that mitigates cancers, diabetes, and heart disease. Uh, just ask Dr. Oz and Bill Clinton, who actually, I guess, credits the doctor for his return to health. Uh, welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Dr. Campbell. Thank you for having me. Great Pleasure. to have you. Uh, Okay, so you are changing the way Americans relate to food. First, I guess I have to ask you the question, why do we need to change the way we relate to food, as you explain it in your book, Whole? Well, we've got big problems. I mean, it can be defined in many different ways, and I think a lot of people sort of sense this. Some people know it. Uh, but basically, uh, our health care system is not what it could be. The cost of health care in this country per capita is uh, the highest in the world, in the industrial world with that. Second highest, I mean, it's twice as high as the second highest. we got that problem. On the other hand, uh, the uh, the cost of the food, too, is, uh, is, is out of line. In other words, the cheapest food that we're actually able to get, uh, quite frankly, is the food that has been subsidized by the government, by our taxpayer dollars. And so what we're doing, you know, as a society, in a sense, is putting money into the production of food that in turn, that in turn is consumed that actually is likely to cause us the biggest problems. Hey, let's and talk about the problems have... that the food that, I mean, the food we eat is causing us problems. I, 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 apparently, according to you, our dietary, what we eat, our diet contributes to cancer, heart disease, all of the major killers of, of that uh, uh, the major killers, I guess, um, the standard American diet is not good for us. It's um, and that's what's killing us. I guess uh, we need to change it. Yeah, defined in terms of nutritional characteristics, which is the way being um, in science, as I have been for so long. Um, that's one way to define the food. In other words, our diet is very high in protein, much higher than what we need. It's very high in fat, much higher than what we need. And, of course, uh, we're doing that by consuming, for one thing, animal-based foods, uh, you know, going through the roof, essentially. Seventy percent of our total protein intake, for example, on average, is from the animal-based food kingdom. Um, and we made not just protein, but the second thing is we're very high in fat. We're up around 30, 35 percent of the total calories when we could, could and should be around 10 to 12 percent. Um, and, of course, the, our consumption of vegetables and fruits and grains, the whole grains and whole foods, I mean, whole grains, legumes and fruits and vegetables, I mean, it's much, much too low. And that's where the really uh, uh, big bang for the buck is, so to speak, in terms of nutrition. So we're, we're basically consuming the wrong foods. We need to completely redistribute, you know, the, the, uh, the balance of the foods that we're consuming. We also consume far too much processed foods, too. Now, that's, that's just equally bad, if not worse, 
Uh, we make processed foods that are high in salt, sugar, and fat, the three, three, three devils, as we like to say sometimes. We become addicted to those tastes. It really is an addiction. We become addicted to those tastes. We want those things. We only continue to consume them. And so in the process, by consuming either processed foods on the one hand or the animal-based foods on the other that are high in fat and protein, that combination um, sort of eliminates our consuming the kind of foods we ought to be consuming. Namely, the whole plant-based food. So there's really a positive message here. And I like to talk about the positive more than, more than the yeah, negative, Yeah, let's talk about the positive. What we should be doing as, a, as opposed to what we should not be doing, you mean? Yes, I, I like the positive message. I really do. Um, and the positive message is that the plants, the whole plant, has a kind of nutrients in them, if we want to define it that way, that really does do an amazing array of things as far as our biology is concerned and, and preventing diseases and and so forth. We are able, for example, to reverse heart disease in advanced stages by consuming the plant-based foods. We're able to reverse diabetes, especially type 2 diabetes, and actually reduce substantially, the, according to uh, evidence, uh, substantially reduce the medications for even type 1 diabetes. Uh, we, and I've been lecturing a lot since our book came out uh, now over eight years ago, probably 500 lectures, I guess, and most of it to medical schools now. And what I'm what I'm finding is that uh, the effect is even greater than what I thought it was when we first wrote the book. I mean, all kinds of ailments, ailments having to do with just simple pains of one kind or another, um, heart disease, diabetes. I mean, blood sugar can be uh, reduced substantially, blood cholesterol, the so-called LDL cholesterol or, or bad cholesterol, uh, blood pressure, body weight. All those things seem to respond and respond very quickly when we switch over to this whole food plant-based diet. Well, you mentioned something, Dr. K. I want to interrupt you because you mentioned something that you know, a lot of your lecturing is done in medical schools. Well, from my experience, the physicians who come out of these medical schools don't usually recommend a vegan or a vegetarian diet to help you, you know, to get to... Uh, get rid of diabetes or heart disease or cancer, but if they take the pharmaceutical approach. It's always wanting to medicate you or giving you medication to kind of mitigate the bad stuff that's happening in your body. Yeah, you said it exactly right. Uh, it's true. The medical schools have not taught nutrition. I don't know of one medical school in the country that really teaches nutrition at all seriously. They might have an occasional sort of elective course, uh, kind of superficial information, but they don't teach nutrition. Uh, that, that is a problem. And they, they're instead, they're relying on use of medications. They let the disease happen. Uh, people be, start to become ill or they're at least, they see a higher risk. And so they, they uh, then use all kinds of chemicals, basically drugs and supplements and stuff like that to keep themselves well. So, yeah, it's true. The medical schools have not done that. But it's my experience also at the same time, especially I've gotten involved, is quite substantially involved in now in lecture to medical schools and medical audiences, is that the ones who went to the school now are physicians. They were never taught this. Actually, the reaction I'm getting is, there, is anger. They really don't understand why they weren't taught this in the beginning. In other words, I, I think the medical profession is really the profession that needs to take the lead in this. And I'm delighted to see in the last two or three years uh, quite a substantial number of people in medical, you know, some of the leading people and practicing physicians. I see that quite a number of people all of a sudden realize that if they tell their patients this message, they can see what happens, and I'm just seeing physicians coming out of the woodwork, sort of taking up this uh, this opportunity. 
Well, and maybe it's a result of what you mentioned. Yeah, well, maybe it's a result of what you mentioned in the beginning because, you know, 60% of us are obese and, uh, you know, the cost of medical care and all the stuff that's really coming down as a result of all the improper eating and the, and the disease and stuff. So they're able to see that and really wanting to do something about it. I read somewhere that you, uh, even in, in your work and research, that tumors, cancerous tumors can be reduced if you eat the right kinds of foods. Yeah, the same message uh, that's used for reversing heart disease and diabetes and so forth, in the laboratory at least, that was much of my work in my early career. We can actually reverse experiment. We can reverse cancer simply by changing the level of protein intake, for example. I mean, the protein that we were using at that time that I found so striking was actually the main protein of cow's milk. Now, when that was fed, for example, uh, at higher levels, it turns on the cancer growth, and it does it by a multiple different kinds of so-called mechanisms. It, it's, it's like a tsunami of effects you know, at the biological level, so we could turn on cancer by elevating the consumption of that protein. We could turn it off by reducing the level of that protein or replacing it with plant protein, such as soy or wheat or something like that. So in an experimental sense, yes, we did demonstrate we could turn on and turn off cancer by modifying nutrient intake. And then you can take uh, those kinds of observations, in our case, which was protein, we went on to look at dietary fat and another different kind of cancer, and we looked at antioxidants and so forth. And so when, we st- when I started seeing this sort of generalized or sort of generic effect of nutrients of various kinds, you know, to their ability to affect cancer growth, it turned out that, you know, the nutrients that are present in plant-based foods is the stuff that really keeps that disease under control. And even, I hope, in many cases, it can actually reverse it. We need more research in the area, and that's another uh, sort of topic that I've been uh, dealing with to some extent in medical schools is because here we have this information of the effect of diet on heart disease, cancer, I mean heart disease, diabetes, and other diseases, and we have some reasonably good evidence to suggest it works for cancer as well. But there's no research money or very little to actually do it to show, in fact, that that can work that way. And in the practice, oncologists and people like that, good people trying to solve problems on the one hand, on the other hand, are unaware and not even unwilling to even try this with individuals. And that's kind of considerably frustrating. Yep. Well, I, I, your hypothesis is, or your um, most diseases or most disease-related deaths are preventable by diet. Um, yeah. And yeah, and I, I assume that's what you've. Well, that's what you write about and what you've seen over the right. past 40 years. But given well, that, uh, you know, if now... I, if I just say, I'm just one second, you were saying preventing. You know, the really big message here is actually treatment. We have known that the, these diseases can be prevented by this, by this strategy. Now we're knowing the same strategy. When it's done right, can actually reverse disease. That is treat. So we're shifting from the prevention paradigm, if you will, which still works over to a treatment target. That's the exciting message. Well, what about this? Sorry for the It seems to me there's a lot of emphasis now, and I'm not sure why, uh, on, on genes. Genes are a cure for... Uh, genes cause everything. We can't help it. You know, if we have a certain gene, we're going to get this disease. If we have another gene, we're going to get this disease, which actually takes away the responsibility from the individual for to eat well to begin with. But I, I do see that, you know, and, you, and this whole thing about... Well, the whole human genome thing. So, if you have this particular gene, you're going to get this particular disease. How do you approach that? 
Well, I've been working on that question for 30 or 40 years in a recruiter way in the early years, but uh, you're absolutely true. Here's sort of the bottom line. Every disease, every, uh, disease or health event starts with genes. In other words, genes happen to provide the blueprint. Blueprints for virtually everything that happens, whether it's good or bad. Okay, so they, they all start, everything starts with genes. So in that sense, yes, genes cause disease. Yes, genes cause other kinds of things. However, it's not the presence or the absence of the genes that we may have that's going to dictate or determine the diseases we're going to get. Because it, it, it's the nutrition that controls the expression of these genes. That's what's being missed. That's what people are missing. So, you know, whereas it, there's a little truth in the, in the idea that genes cause disease, but the diseases don't have to be caused just because the genes are there. If we consume the right kind of food, and that's, we were demonstrating this in our laboratory for many years, we, we can just keep the, these genes under control. And we all have some genes we probably wish we didn't have, if you will, on the one hand. But if you're consuming the right kind of diet, you can keep those genes under control. That's really what it did. And so nutrition trumps genes. Nutrition right, so- trumps obviously big time. Can you give us an example? Give us like give us an example of, of somebody who has a gene for a certain disease, and uh, maybe diabetes or whatever, and how that can be prevented or you well, won't. I, yeah. Yeah, I, I think the best scientific evidence, uh, at least from the early scientific evidence, to best explain this is basically basically population-based studies. That is to say, when uh, people in Asia, for example. Uh, this was done 40, 50 years ago. When people in Asia uh, from a country like that where, let's say, cancer is low, they move to the states, the United States, and, and they start consuming our country diet, and they don't, take, they don't change their genes. They keep their genes the same. And they, in those studies, they didn't intermarry with the local population. So uh, let's say Japanese come into the West Coast, um, their genes remain the same when they start changing their – so they have the same genes – they start eating our kind of diet, and all of a sudden, breast cancer, colon cancer, heart disease starts to increase. So, you know, the genes haven't changed. What has changed is the nutrition that actually controls those genes. I mean, that's one of the oldest kinds of evidence that's been around for a long time. And then in the laboratory, um, the same thing. Uh, if one studies uh, cancer experimentally or even heart disease experimentally, we know those, those events start with genes. And again, if we just sort of modify nutrient intake, we can keep them under control. I mean, that's just uh, just just the way it is. Yeah. So that's a very um, powerful example, I guess, or argument for yes, the genes. You, that's that's a great example, as a matter of fact. Okay, but then how do you change? We know that, and we know how people eat, and we know the results of it in the United States, and we're eating poorly, our nutrition is bad, I'm repeating this again, we're obese, we have lots of, we're sick with type 2 diabetes, and I could go on and on, but let's say we understand that, how do we change it? How do you change people's behavior, even if they have the information, because that seems to be a problem. I mean, you have middle, you know, it used to be the excuse that you would hear, that I would hear, you know, there are people who are impoverished or they, they don't have an education, they don't understand nutrition, but I see more and more middle class people, upper middle class people, well educated, who can read the labels when they go to the grocery store, who have access to good food, and yet they're not changing their behavior when they know that it's going to cause these diseases, and they're still eating the the processed foods and the you know too much meat or eggs and all of the how do you why well let me just offer a couple of ideas 
Uh, one is that uh, high fat consumption, high sugar consumption, for example, of a present diet, that's an addiction. It really is a physiological addiction. It acts on this, the pleasure tr- uh, centers of our brain, so to speak. And so if we first recognize that what we're now eating that we like so much, it really is an addiction. I mean, and just that knowledge alone. And what, what we know is that then you switch to a, say, low-fat, low-protein kind of diet, low-sugar kind of diet. It may take a month or two to sort of overcome that addiction. But once one gets there, then all of a sudden new tastes, in a sense, begin to emerge. And you actually then react against that old taste that what we did have. All of a sudden, it's, it's unpleasant. So it, 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 I guess what I'm saying is people should know there's a little light at the end of the tunnel as far as making this transition is concerned. Uh, the second thing is, is that you're, you're actually speaking of a, the whole system by which we actually buy food, consume food, practice medicine, so forth and so on. Actually, I'm working with sons of mine, in fact, you know, putting together programs uh, that actually can be used by individuals uh, that uh, then, and we, we've I've been thinking a lot about this the last 10, 15 years, it, it really has to do with sustaining behavior change. And there's a certain sort of number of steps, sequential number of steps that one can take if, you, if we sort of think about it in, in, in an intellectual sense. Information alone is the necessary first step, but it's not enough to cause people to really change, not too many people at least. The second step is sort of uh, changing the, that paradigm a little bit, and instead of just offering information, actually showing them how it works, let them experience it. It's an experiential kind of education. That that engages a lot more people when they all of a sudden realize, wow, I can't believe this. I mean, I've seen this happen. I've seen it happen a number of times. And then the third step is the tough one, quite frankly, and that is you know, trying to figure out a way by which you support the individual who wants to make change to support them with certain procedures and, and, and things like that. And that's, as they say, I'm doing that, or my sons are doing that, I'm working with them. Uh, so we, we have some models in place now that uh, I'm really convinced that when people get to know this and they get to experience this, and then they realize that, you know, during that transition, you know, their, their tastes are going to change and they're going to really enjoy eventually what they're now consuming. Uh, and then they, they make it convenient for them in a number of different ways. Um, I, I, I'm very excited about just that that sort of approach that strategy. Yeah, I think it is. I think it's necessary. I mean, it, you have to do that. Well, we have to do that, I guess, if we are going to make behavior changes. But one, but right. there's another piece to this, too, and I'm someone who watches their weight and weighs 105 pounds and, and you know, weighs myself every day. But what I find is, even when I do eat the right, and I do eat the right foods most of the time, fruits and vegetables, I don't know if it's because they're genetically engineered food, but they're tasteless. Most of the time, the fruits and the vegetables have become tasteless. So, you know, you, the person who wants to, you know, realize they're addicted to sugar and wants to eat something better and after a while gets used to it, we have to have good food, too, to give to them. Yes, yes. Tasteful. Yeah, you're, yeah, you're, you're right. I don't know about the genetic modification. I think that's certainly a, a, a considerable concern uh, that worries me. Uh, but uh, plants have been bred in various sundry rays for quite a while now, and unfortunately, the the good taste of plants grown organically uh, earlier on, and that's what I was raised on a farm, and we ate those kind of foods. Um, I also milked cows, by the way, and for, for all of my years when I was growing up. 
But in any case, going back, get the the, the foods uh, that we used to get from the garden. Still can if we do it that way. Uh, they're very tasty compared to the stuff you get in stores. I mean, tomatoes are a classic example. I'm sure, you probably know that if you get some tomatoes you grow out of your garden, um, should be quite tasty uh, compared to the stuff that we end up buying in the stores. Strawberries are another one where the taste difference is huge. Uh, and yeah, it's it's a problem. I don't know quite what to say about that except to support. Uh, you know, local farm markets, for example, and for one thing, you can have a better opportunity of getting you know, some of those good foods with better taste. Uh, it, that's, that's quite a challenge, what you just, uh, what you just said. And, and in order to get people back to being able to discover what uh, real food really tastes like, and it, it's, it's good. Yeah, we, I, I think that, produce- yeah, it is a major challenge. And yes, one of the, you can support, support local farmers and go to the, you know, the green markets and stuff. But the reality is that most people, people in cities, and, and not necessarily just in cities, we go to the grocery store, one-stop shopping. It's easier. We do it. You go. And, and you mentioned tomatoes. I mean, in my grocery store, there are probably 10 or 12 different varieties of tomatoes, all of which taste horrible or have no taste at all. Right. Uh, so there's the illusion that there are choices, but there aren't really. There aren't good choices, good food that tastes good. Yeah, it's it's really it really is true. I mean, that taste has disappeared. And having raised on the in the country, you know, food from the garden, and even picking wild wild things like wild strawberries and stuff like that, there's nothing to match that taste. It's not even close these days. Um, we've just kind of bred those good qualities in the plant in the plant foods out of out of existence almost, it seems like to me. I, I, but, you know, at the same time, let's, let's be positive about it. I, I think that what we need, too, is that not only to support the local farmers, for one thing, the farm markets, but uh, there are some ways of growing our own, maybe even in cities. I know at uh, Cornell University, uh, there's been a program for some years, you know, trying to work with the possibility of having gardens and rooftops and things like that in New York City, uh, for example. And... Uh, I don't know whether that's going to go very far or not because there's a limitation of space and time and everything else. But on the other hand, let, let, let me say this: uh, you know, the, the foods in the grocery store, yes, they're they're relatively tasteless. They're, they're less tasty, if let's say it that way, than what the original foods really were. But still, you know, those foods still offer a lot as far as you know health effects are concerned. And so, well, and after we change our taste and get onto it. Uh, you know, we could still use those foods. Not quite as good as it was to pull them out of the ground, but still quite good. Well, that is a positive way of, of looking at it. I'm thinking about the roof, as what you said about putting the gardens on the roofs in New York City. Of course, then you have to think about, and I don't like to be negative because I am a positive thinker too, but I'm thinking about all the pollution in the cities that's going to be on, you know, affecting those gardens. But that's an, I guess that's, a, that's another issue. Yeah, it's uh, it can be enclosed to some extent. I I've got I know some people who have these big glass enclosed um, facilities. One in uh, Portland, Maine, I think it's got something like 45 acres, you know, under glass like that, and they're producing tomatoes and cucumbers. I think are the main things they're producing. They're supplying much of Boston, but they're doing it organically, uh, with uh, you know environmental control. And doing it in a very environmentally, very environmentally responsible way. We need more of that kind of activity. 
Yeah, I, I think that it has to be publicized more. You know, we yes. have to be. Yes. Yeah, I mean, that's the first time I've heard of it. You know, you're mentioning it on the show, which is a good thing. But you know, the public needs to be aware that 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 kind of you know that 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 exists and, and to replicate it. Right, right. That's true. What you're doing, for example, is really important, and that's just, you know, providing the opportunity for us to have this kind of discussion, and it needs to happen more often. Exactly. Well, we've come to the end of the show, so I do, but I want to mention your book again. Um, we've been talking to Cornell Emeritus Professor, Ph.D., T. Colin Campbell, and his book is Whole, Rethinking the Science of Nutrition. I guess we can just start by reading your book. Well, the first book was the China study. Yep. Uh, this, this is the follow-up, of course, explaining why we saw what we saw in the China study in a sense. Yeah, it's quite exciting. We also have a website uh, that uh, offers online courses in this in this area. All right, well, give us the website before we say yeah, goodbye. Yeah, it's in my name, uh, tcollincampbell.org. Uh, we do it with a group at Cornell, uh, one of the top online programs in the country, and our program is right now number one. Terrific. You know, all the courses that are offered. Yeah, it's uh, it's an exciting thing. We offer CME credits for for physicians and other professionals, so professors can take it, the public can take it. Okay, well then, there's no excuse not to at least start with having the information. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Well, thank you for having yeah, me. It's it was great, great to have you. We're going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you have been listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.